hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I think the listeners are in for a treat today because both of us have had stressful weeks and we're finally coming out of it. And so uh, just buckle your seatbelts, everybody. We're in good moods. Oh, it's so true. There's a little loopiness going on right now. Yes. I, for one, am so excited. I am down to one final paper in my seminary career, and I could not be more thrilled about what it is. Uh, We talked a couple episodes about the fact that I created a rule of life. Same professor, different class, spiritual formation, particularly as it uh, pertains to going into full-time ministry. How do you stay spiritually healthy while engaged in depleting ministry? is the focus of the class. And so the end result of that, the final paper we have to write, is another rule of life specifically correlated to our future ministry plans and how we intend to stay healthy spiritually while exercising that calling. And that's awesome. Yeah. I cannot believe that as it turns out, that is my final seminary activity. It's such a great way to round out my seminary training. And I can't wait. And it's the last thing I really have to do other than some minor odds and ends. So I'm thrilled. That's awesome. What a great... You've had a series of great capstone projects. Yes, it's really turned out that way. I'm excited. And the final thing I'm going to do to cap off everything is go on a personal retreat. And I would love to talk to you about how that goes once it's done, but... Until oh, then. yeah. Tell us. How is that going to go? Oh. oh, wait. You wanted to talk about it after it was done. <laughs> like I said, folks, we're snarky today. Uh, so, Josh from Missouri, why are you in such a good mood? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I don't know that I can effectively explain why I'm doing well, but uh, I will say this. The Missouri weather has shifted from these sort of 30 degree days that have been randomly happening recently to uh, I think today was probably like 65 and wildly sunny and it was just perfect. So I got to get up, go out, take a run in the woods uh, with my wife, head into church. It, It was just, it was a great start of a day. And I think anytime you start the day off well, it sort of gets you going in the right direction anyway. And then it was all, um, you know, neither uphill nor downhill are good things in this situation. (laughs) You know, like I was going to say, it was all uphill from there, but that's like not, that means too much work. And it was all downhill from there. And that means it was like bad. So it was all delightful from there. It was all flat plain from there. Yeah. No hills. It was hillless. Uh, that is great. Uh, the weather has similarly turned here in Oregon. It's 70 degrees here today and sunny. Don't blink. Uh, it's not going to last long. But for a moment, I can pretend that summer is just around the corner. And I'm going to use my best Josh from Missouri segue to say summer. Ooh. Summer must mean it's time for our Summer in the Psalms series, and I am jazzed about this. If this is the first time you've tuned into an episode where we've talked about it, 
Here you go. We are doing a Summer in the Psalms series. We want to read the entire book of Psalms together as a podcast. So Josh from Missouri, Josh from Oregon, we're going to read it, and we want to invite you to join along and read in the exact same plan every single week. And we want to just immerse ourselves in the Psalms. It's going to run from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That is the reading schedule. We've broken it out to maybe about 25 verses a day. Very attainable, uh, even though both of us have acknowledged already that we will probably need to catch up or speed up or something like that just to do something consistently every day for the entire summer. But um, we invite you to go on that journey with us. We're going to use our thoughts segment at the end of each show to talk about the Psalms and what we read, what we encountered. And we want to hear from you as well. So you can find our reading plan in the show notes. You can find our reading plan on social media. And please come join us. We want to read the Psalms together. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm excited to dig into the Psalms. I'm excited to just have a great experience with this. As a matter of fact, one of the books that I was looking at recently, the introduction is the author talking about a class he was in led by Eugene Peterson. Mm. And the author talks about how at the end of the class, he went up to Peterson and said, okay, all of that was great information, but if I want to go deeper in my relationship with God from where I'm at right now. What do I do? And Peterson said, tomorrow when you get up, read Psalm number one. And the next day, read Psalm number two. And when you've read Psalm 150, start again. And he turned away around and walked away. <laughs> Dang. Okay. Mike dropped. And that was it. And the author has done this and has found it to be incredibly profound. Whoa, uh, good so, for him for doing it. That's not right? that's not how I expected you to end that. Yeah. It, well, I mean, he did it enough that he wrote a book about the Psalms. Wow. Uh, so good for him. Yeah. Uh, I think it's called Open and Unafraid. Mm, what a good a title. Super cool title. But uh, yeah, so I am... Just looking forward to spending some time in the Psalms. Me too. Bring it on. But that is not today's topic. That's not why I was calling it today. We'll get there. And and what I wanted to talk with you about today is adjacent to the Psalms, but not directly related to it. So we're having a um, Psalms-adjacent conversation. Yes, a Psalms-adjacent conversation. There are a lot of those in life. Uh <laughs> Ironically, I think there probably are. That's why the Psalms are so delightful. But this particular one has to do with the idea of beauty. When I think about spiritual growth or the spiritual life or the Bible, I think about ideas like truth. And I have a category and spot to put those in. I know why truth is good. I know why truth is important. I know why God values truth. I know how truth helps me grow. I get it. But more and more, I am starting to think that there is an important role that beauty has to play in the spiritual life. 
And I want to talk about that. So what do you think? Boy, I would love to. I've been growing in that same idea, and I know I need to spend more time with it. So let's do it. That's awesome. So I'm curious to start with, you know, I I always like to start a conversation with where are we at right now? What's our starting point? And you used this interesting phrase. You said, that's an area I've been growing in too. What particularly makes you say that? My spiritual formation. Or was it just a really convenient segue? Oh, yeah. No, it was my opportunity (laughs) to make myself look better than I am. And oh, yes, yes. No, I'm I'm very much thinking about those things. Please proceed. That's really what it was. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I, I am brand new with this, though, because for a long time, I'm like you, I have thought very highly of truth and propositional truth. And we talk a lot on this podcast just about ideas and theology and philosophy and how does something work like we were very consumed with ideas but what i'm learning to appreciate is that not everything in the world boils down to a proposition not everything is just truth or lie there is beauty in the world there is something spiritually significant about beauty and i'm particularly drawing these lessons from my spiritual formation classes that I've been in, where they have integrated a substantial amount of art through the ages. And it amazes me. Yeah. And this has not been part of my Christian experience to date. But over this last year, as I've taken these classes, this professor has done a masterful job of bringing in all of these different art pieces throughout the years and and embedding them into her slides and illustrating her points using these artists' rendition of what that might mean or what that might look like. And I tell you what, it's a whole different world. And it reminds me that beauty is wildly important. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so curious can, can you think of an example? Like, I know that's very, very kind of granular, but it's so interesting to me to have art pulled into a presentation like that and for somebody to walk away and say, that enhanced my understanding and experience of that. I would love an example if you have one, but it's totally okay if you don't. Yeah, I'll give you one of many, 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 many examples. So it's not necessarily that this is the best or the end-all, be-all, but it is a beautiful, beautiful painting by Hieronymus Bosch from 1505. And he is depicting the deadly sins, so the vices. And he's doing so kind of almost, you know, in um, elementary school where you would make like a like two pieces of paper connected by a brad in the middle and you would spin the outer one to reveal just like one small little picture and then you'd turn oh, yeah, it yeah, you turn it again and it would reveal like another little picture it it looks like that just without the front covering so you see all the little pictures in the wheel and each sort of the slices of the pie Yes, exactly. And each slice of the pie or piece of the wheel is a separate deadly sin. And 
it depicts it in art form. And it's really fascinating to like zoom in on each of these little pieces and get into his mind about what that sin looks like in everyday life, everyday reality. So Bosch is a main part of, we did a whole thing on the vices and what they really are and how they seep into our lives. And we kept coming back to Bosch in addition to many, many other artists as we explored each of these. That's awesome. I am always intrigued by how much art fills out our understanding and experience of things, which already hits me on why I think this is important for our spiritual lives, right? Like truth is sort of like the skeleton of reality, but when you add beauty to the mix, it's like adding muscles and bones and filling out that skeleton with a real person. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I'm thinking specifically of that skeleton, right? And why do we focus so much on truth? Well, it's the thing that structurally holds everything together. And yes, you need both beauty and truth. But at the end of the day, if you don't have truth, you have no structure, you have no form, you have nothing but, and you have nothing really on which to construct beauty. It just turns into kind of a puddle that isn't aesthetically pleasing because you need you need both. So I really like your imagery there. Yeah, and the reverse is equally true, right? If you have truth without beauty, you end up with a skeleton instead of a person. And who really wants to be friends with that? <laughs> right. right. Uh, no offense um, to all the paleontologists out there. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? If your closest friend is one of your skeletons, please keep listening to our podcast because we are all about friendship and you need some. <laughs> uh, nice. But, and this is, I think this is equally true in a number of areas. For example, you know, when I'm reading the Bible, and I've been wrestling with how to say this. Sometimes I read the Bible and something, I experience the truth of what is happening there in whatever text I'm reading. Sometimes I read the Bible and I experience a sense of the beauty of what is happening there. And those two complement each other exceptionally well. Yeah, they really do. And I find the same to be true when I am translating Sometimes I hmm. look I, I look at the, the Hebrew or the Greek, and not only do I experience the text and the truth in a new way, but I experience the beauty of language in a new way. And sometimes it's hard to say which one I enjoy more. I, it's just, I, I'm going to use a Josh from the Missouri word, it's just delightful. <laughs> Gold star to anybody in the listening audience who can comment on one of our posts to tell us where we get the word delightful so often into my vocabulary. There's a specific person I'm quoting when I say delightful, and I would love if somebody could actually catch that. That would be delightful, too. 
I love that you used the word. It, it, like you just couldn't even help yourself. It's like, here it comes again. I couldn't. That was not on purpose. <laughs> I know. Um, that was genuinely, it just came out uh, in part because how could it not if I'm thinking about that particular person? I guess it just is what it is. For me, the place that I end up seeing this kind of beauty in the Bible often is in the, and I feel like this is going to sound so weird, but this actually gives me language for something I really appreciate and can never quite figure out what it is I appreciate about it. And it's the larger structure of an extended piece of the Bible. So when I suddenly come to an understanding that the book of Isaiah is structured in a very intentional, careful way, putting all the pieces together. There's a flow of thought. That is something that I experience as beautiful. Mm. I just look at that and think, wow, that is art right there. You know, I'm just imagining as you say that it's like going to some of these modern art pieces that they're making, where if you stand at one end of the Mm -hmm. room and you look at it dead on, it's like, I don't know, a a guy standing on some, on a chair trying to reach something. And then you walk like 90 degrees around the room and you look at it from another angle and all of a sudden it's an elephant. And you're like, whoa, how did the same sculpture like look two different ways and so it's it's almost like seeing the beauty in it just by, you know, a, a new layer of beauty in it just by looking at it from another angle, like that wide lens that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to describe it. And you're right, that sort of, I don't know if you're describing a picture or a sculpture, but I'm envisioning you describing a sculpture. Yes. Okay. Which leads, I think, to the practical question So we're talking a little bit about how we experience beauty in spiritual things here. But I I think one question that is actually hard for me to articulate an answer for is, why does it matter? I know why truth matters. Truth matters because without it, I will get things wrong. Right? Like I will make wrong decisions without truth. I will be misinformed about how people and what people are. I'll be acting on wrong assumptions about the, the nature of the universe. I can't live in a world in which reality is an actual thing if I don't have truth. But why does beauty matter? Yeah, I see what you're saying about not being able to necessarily articulate an answer to that question, because I think it's something we feel to be true more than we put words to it. And it's the same. I'm going to date us right now and talk about Ferris Bueller's day off. It's, I think, mm. part of what Ferris Bueller was rebelling against and like going out and seeking all this fun, right? When you hear Bueller, Bueller, right? And a, and a teacher that is standing up there, incredibly boring. And they might be teaching true things, and they might be giving you an education that theoretically you need someday. But if it is done in an uninteresting way, there's something about us that just wants to rebel. Go take the day off. Go live for a change. Because as true and as good and important as that education might be, 
oh my gosh, it's not beautiful, it's not fun, it's not interesting, I'm leaving. I think you're right. When something doesn't deeply engage us, when we don't result in a sense of delight or wonder or joy or something like that, I think you're right. We want to take the day off. We want to quit, right? Like, it's just sort of a, "Mm, this is not for me. It doesn't engage us to our fullest. Yes. I think you used a phrase. I'm going to butcher it. Maybe you can remember it. You, You said something on the podcast a number of episodes ago in talking about heaven and how that is meant to engage us or spark our imagination more than it is to inform us. It doesn't specifically say what heaven is going to be like, but it gives us just enough to spark that that thing, whatever that X factor is that we're trying to describe here, that enlivens us and connects us with the truth. First of all, if I said that it is either deeply profound or incredibly heretical, and I'm not entirely sure which— Um, you know, it could go either way, could be both. Um, but if the idea of heaven is supposed to capture us in such a way as to change our behavior now, if we're sort of supposed to be magnetically attracted into the future in a way that causes us to act right now, just the facts aren't enough, right? Yeah. And I think it does more than just illuminate the truth. I think beauty inspires hope. And I sense Ooh. this I sense this particularly with do you remember the song by Gungor? I understand that Gungor has maybe deconstructed his faith since since this came out, but there was a song called Beautiful Things. Do you know this song? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually heard Gungor perform it live. Oh, fantastic. This is one of those amazing, hope-filled songs for me. It elicits hope. One, the song itself is beautiful. Two, it speaks of beauty. It speaks about beauty from ashes. And this hope anthem that you make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things out of us. The idea that the future could be beautiful, that as messed up as I am or as messed up as my situation might be, the future could be beautiful. And with God's help will be beautiful. I feel like beauty and hope really go hand in hand. I think you're right. I am not sure that truth in and of itself drives behavior particularly effectively. Mm. For example, I work with lots and lots of addicts. And I was having a conversation with somebody who deals with a fairly significant drinking problem today. And they know that drinking is not good for them. They know that they cannot handle themselves around alcohol. They know that if they drink any kind of alcohol 
they are almost guaranteed to make bad decisions and to keep drinking to significant excess. They, they 100% assent to all of those facts. And yet, they often keep drinking. Mm. Knowing those truths, somehow it's not enough. And if, as I dug in deeper with this person, they understand the fact that there's trauma in their lives, they understand the fact that they're using drinking as a coping mechanism. I went through all the various layers of things a recovering addict should know. They know them all. They also know Jesus and have accepted his forgiveness and leadership in, in their lives. And I mean, they've got all the boxes checked, but something's missing. Do you think that beauty is a piece of what they're missing? Do you think beauty would I, somehow inspire them to do better or live more healthfully? I think that this connection between beauty and hope really catches it. Hmm. Hope, in a sense, is believing that the future can be beautiful, right? Yeah. It's kind of what you were just saying a few moments ago. Right. And on some level, that is a piece of what's missing. Not the only thing. And, and I'm not trying to simplify recovery down to one particular thing, but this particular person is not in love with the future in which they don't drink. Mm. That's a good way to say that. And so the cost is harder to pay. And maybe they're going to continue to pay those costs until, as you say, they can fall in love with the future that doesn't have drinking in it. And part of that is finding beauty in that scenario. Yeah, I think beauty is a thing worth sacrificing for. Mm. And, and there's a significant amount of overlap here, right? Like, I think there are people who would happily, joyously sacrifice for the truth. But I think their emotional experience of the truth involves an experience of beauty. And that is ultimately why they're really sacrificing. Yeah. You know, since Psalms are so much on our minds right now, I'm thinking particularly of the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms that were sung on the way to the Jerusalem temple and going up to Jerusalem and seeing this magnificent city, this kind of the center of their theological and cultural and religious universe, and the temple which dominates the landscape, and heading to this thing, and they sing about the beauty of the city. They sing about the beauty of the mountains surrounding it. They sing about the beauty of the temple and how wonderful it is to be in God's house and to look to the Lord's help through that lens. All of these things are beauty that shape truth. Yeah, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Right? right? Like that is a, there is a beauty in that. Yeah. An experience in that. Well, and as you said, something that would inspire sacrifice, right? They're giving up time, right. they're giving up money, they're giving up effort to make their way to Jerusalem to worship 
in the Jerusalem sanctuary. So that is a sacrifice, but it doesn't feel like it because they're they're pursuing beauty. There's so much excitement. There's so much devotion in all of that that, you know, it, it just doesn't feel like sacrifice. You know, when I was in high school, I had this very kooky teacher named Mr. Poison. Mr. Poison was the most postmodern teacher I have ever had, Hmm. but he was consistently so. So much so that I had students in my class with me who would walk in and just turn their desk around so it was facing the back of the room. Mr. So-and-so, why are you doing that? Well, sir, I was hoping to get a different perspective today. Okay. (laughs) And that actually worked. But one of the things he did that was brilliant, there are a few key words that he believed if we understood properly, they would change our lives. I have quoted him many times to you when we talk about meditation because he trained us to say that meditation is paying attention in a relaxed way. But we had to memorize the definition of sacrifice and it had to be word for word perfect. And it had to, we had to say sacrifice is giving up something less for something more. Mm. And in the context that you're describing it, you never give up the lesser thing until you come to believe that the, the other thing is a greater thing. And it can't merely be objectively greater. It needs to somehow be subjectively greater. Not just greater in general, but greater to me. Greater in my experience. Greater for me. Yeah. I don't know what it would take, what I would necessarily need to give up in order to pursue beauty more. Maybe that's a separate question. But the one I'm really faced with, though, as we've talked about this, is how? How would you encourage me or any of our listeners to pursue beauty more in their lives? What can we, what practical things can we do to actually make beauty more of a priority? Man, it, it's unfortunately... It's unfortunate that you beat me to the question because I was going to ask you that question. Uh, Now I don't have to answer it. I know. That's exactly how I was feeling. I'm like, oh, shoot. Now I have to answer it. I was going to be the one to ask. Um, But, you know, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, you come to appreciate beauty by experiencing beauty. And I experience beauty in a number of ways. But one that has been deeply meaningful for me for much of my life and is why I'm so excited about our Summer in the Psalms series is reading the Psalms slowly. It took me a long time to realize that you don't read the Psalms and you don't read a poem the same way you read a parable or a historical account of a war or anything else. You read a poem slowly and sort of let it roll over you as you read it. And I think for me, almost all of the things that I think of when I think of experiencing beauty have to do with slowing down. I'm not sure if that's just me or if that's just a universal truth. You can't experience beauty in a rush. Hmm. Uh, So there are a host of 
modern and postmodern artists whose work are focused on slowing us down. Uh, some of these are Christians like uh, Makoto Fujimura. Some of these are secular artists who are trying to rediscover the sacred, like James Terrell. But this movement called slow art, the challenge is to sit with the painting or the sculpture or whatever slowly and let it eventually soak in. And I think for me, that's what art has to be about. It has to be about taking the time to experience it. Not just to have seen it and checkmark it off in my mind, but to have experienced it, whether it's a poem or a sculpture or painting or whatever. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think slowing down is part of this. And I think my application of slowing down, I love to hike. And being out in the woods is a far different thing than driving through the woods. You see more. Mm. and you take the time to notice things. But if hiking isn't your speed, you know, biking through the woods or even in a beautiful city. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the fact that you said, if hiking isn't your speed, biking. (laughs) I'm sorry, I, I just, the... Isn't your speed part was just too on the nose for what you were about to say. Uh, sure, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think those things, um, I think a good book, you've talked a couple of times now about books that you've gotten, you know, of your favorite author, and, and it's just aesthetically pleasing to hold and to look at, um, just mm. appreciating those things, I think is all a part of it. But I also feel like to some extent, it's individualized. We find beauty in yes. very different things. I follow somebody on Facebook who does amazing pottery and finds beauty in these this lump of clay. I wouldn't spend my time pursuing beauty in a lump of clay, but they do, and I can I can appreciate the final result. So where are you? going to find beauty. And, you know, it's funny, in my class, we were kind of talking about similar things recently. And I had said, well, I don't know that I communicate in a beautiful way, right? I'm not very artsy. I I don't uh, make, I don't make music. I don't write poetry. Like, I don't do that. But somebody challenged me on that and said, well, wait a minute, you're a logical linear thinker. There is beauty in order, there is beauty in a well-crafted argument or a well-crafted presentation of something. Beauty is not excluded from that realm. And it, so it helps me to kind of broaden out and say, okay, I'm bent and shaped this way. How can I experience beauty in the particular ways that I've been formed? That's such a good point. Props to whoever in your class said that because it's so true. A well-formed argument is a thing of beauty. Yeah. I have a real good friend uh, here in Missouri. That our church just bought a like trailer-sized smoker. And he smokes ribs and brisket and whatever. And when he is done, that meal is a thing of beauty. Mm. And I have no idea if he knows that. 
he knows it's good and he knows everybody likes it. He knows it tastes good, but there is beauty in food or an argument or any number of things. Yeah, you're exactly right. And as we know, and as we've already alluded to, there's beauty in the Psalms. So I'm going to bring it back to that and remind our audience that's exactly, it's one of many reasons why we're doing this Summer in the Psalms series. So we invite you once again, download that reading plan, join us, follow along. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, just look for On the Phone with Josh. We would love to connect with you. Share with us how you engage with beauty. Or even if you have a picture of a way that you've found beauty, a beautiful picture that is unique to you, share it with us and tell us about it. Let's engage in beauty together. And I think that's one of the distinct advantages of social media. So let's let's do mm, that. That's a great idea. Yeah, please do that. Well, that's what I was thinking about. But uh, what about you? What have you been thinking about this week? Yeah, so I'm reading a book by Sho Baraka. It's a book called He Saw That It Was Good. And uh, talking about beauty, that's much of what he's talking about in this book is the importance of creativity and telling our story and telling the Christian story in a beautiful way, but one that is unencumbered and is a full and holistic look at the story. So he's he's doing a, a great job of talking about beauty, creativity, and truth-telling and how they all kind of come together. But one of the things that he said, it was a, th- a throwaway line. This was not part of any point he was making. But he offhandedly said that the story of Scripture, which we already did an episode on the grand narrative of Scripture, the story of Scripture includes creation, fall, redemption, and justice. And I thought, huh, justice didn't make my list. And I think it needs to have a place, whether it needs to be in one of those like, you know, Roman numeral category headings or a capital letter category heading underneath of that, I don't know. But justice is a main theme of scripture and it plays out all the way straight through. It, you know, the book of Isaiah is tenacious about calling out Israel for being unjust to the poor and to the widow and to its neighbors and to God. And so if Israel could pursue justice and act rightly, it would be honoring to God. And and you see that all throughout all the minor prophets and stuff as well. So I just appreciated Shobaraka's invitation to think about justice as a main category heading in the story that the Bible is trying to tell. That is such a great point and very helpful. I think it's a great challenge. Why why are we not thinking about that? Mm -hmm. So what about you? What are you thinking about? You know, mine also comes from what I've been reading, but I have been reading on the exact opposite end of the scale here. In the last week, I read Keeper of the Lost Cities by Shannon Messenger, and then Dry is the book that I'm working on right now by Neil Shusterman. And these are both uh, middle grade or young adult books, 
one recommended by my daughter, and one recommended by my son. And I have had some awesome, awesome conversations with my kids because I took the time to read what they were reading. Hmm. And I was hesitant to because, first of all, it's just a lot of pages. Between the two <laughs> books, it's like 800 pages. Wow. And the Dagum Keeper of the Lost Cities book is the first in a series of nine. Yeah. You know, like there's a million of them. But more than anything, I'm just caught by the ways in which choosing to engage with something my kids cared about solely for the fact that it was important to my kids opened up whole worlds of conversation and deepened our relationship. And it was a great decision. And uh, I'm really glad I did it. And just a continual reminder to me that if you care about people, you will choose to be interested in what they're interested in. And that's it. That's so good. Yeah, I've I've had a similar experience with my son. My youngest son loves video games. I don't love video games, but one day I was like, okay, he plays a lot of Minecraft. This was a lot of years ago. And I'm like, all right, dude, teach me Minecraft. How do I play this thing? And he and I will play hours and hours worth of Minecraft together now. And it's something we can connect on. And he kind of lights up because he's like, oh, you know a piece of my world. Let's talk about, you know, the next great use of this block or whatever. So nice. Mm-hmm. Yes. In the same vein, I am watching a reality TV show on YouTube with my son that is happening in Minecraft. Oh, it's th- this like survival series of shows. Of who's going to be the last one to survive in the Minecraft world? <laughs> it's like eight episodes, 10 episodes and there's all these rules and whatever, but it's fascinating to me because it's ultimately just a reality TV show in Minecraft. Again, with the blurring of genres that you've been talking about the last few weeks. That's fascinating. Okay. Can I throw one more of those in there? Because I thought this was the weirdest thing and my son thought it was weird that I hadn't heard about it. (laughs) Okay. Now you got me intrigued. I like, this is the weirdest one for me. Have you heard of chess boxing? No, no. Like, do you seriously like move a chess piece and then take a swing at the dude? More or less, yes. (laughs) You play around, you play chess, then you do a round of boxing, and then you play chess, and then you do another round of boxing, and then you play chess, and then you do another round of boxing. This is how you play. It's chess boxing. There are actual YouTube videos of this. Oh, it's a my real gosh. thing. Wow. Chess boxing. Okay. You know who I think designed this? I think that collectively, all the athletes that compete in that winter Olympic sport of like cross country skiing and then shooting, where you're like, why did we combine these things? And they're all like, oh, wait, no, it can get weirder. Um, I know, right? That's, but. Anyway, now I don't have to make an awkward transition because it can't get any weirder than that. Uh, so challenge might accepted. As well just jump. Oh, okay. Go ahead. You do the transition then. Go for it. Oh, dang it! That backfired. Okay, uh, transition. <laughs> uh, in other news, the witch Josh question. <laughs> <laughs> 
In other news. (laughs) Uh, Well, it it actually pertains to TV. So, uh, which Josh has watched every episode of The West Wing twice? And I get to answer it too, because that is me. I have, I don't watch a lot of TV. I'm very selective in what I watch and kind of nerdy in what I watch. I love The West Wing. It is like the best writing on earth. They just did a fantastic job. I have watched it straight through twice. And I just, I love this. Have you watched The West Wing? I have not seen a single one of the 156 episodes of The West Wing that are out there. I just Googled it. That is so atrocious to me. You have got to watch at least at least a few episodes just to get a taste for this. And if you're not hooked, fine. But I think it's right up your alley. We've both read a ton of presidential biographies. We are very fascinated by the inner workings of government and good writing, good analysis of social issues. Boy, it's just, it's all there. And anyway, that's my plug for like a 15-year-old TV show. And it and it holds up? Completely. Ooh, okay. We are about to finish a show and are probably going to be looking for a new one. So I will take a shot at the West Wing. I will be thrilled if you do. All right. I think we have done it. We had another episode in the books. You know, we're coming up on a year's worth of episodes. I know. I just we're so cool. I'm just floored by that. But all right. You want to do another one next week? All right. Sounds like a plan. I'll talk to them. Okay. 